was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I'm honored to be joined by our guest, a man who has done everything conceivable on Broadway, Richard Seth. Richard Seth is the author of such plays as Paris is Out, Shine, the Horatio Alger musical, The Whole Ninth Floor, Spotlight, and more. As an agent, he has represented Kander and Ebb, Cheetah Rivera, Julie Andrews, Ron Field, and more during his 20-year career at MCA, CMA, and his own agency, HBS. He also served as assistant director for the Norman Conquests on Broadway, and hosted the national This Is Broadway radio program. As an actor, you may know him from Darkness at Noon, the musical comedy Murders of 1940, End of the World, Herzl, and more. At 93, he is still a large part of the theater industry, and you may now know his novel, Take a Giant Step, his memoir, character man, or know him from his new career as a theater critic. He even has an award named after him, the Cephys, which are given each year to two outstanding character actors. Before we start, though, I would like to plug an event on Backstage Babble that is happening December 25th through 28th, 2020, and that is the virtual production of 2 by 2 produced by Sandy Durrell and starring two future guests, Walter Willison and Karen Ziemba. So I hope you will look out for that on YouTube and Facebook. Meanwhile, I hope you feel as lucky as I do getting to hear the reminiscences of a true theater veteran, Dick Seth. So I want to ask you first how you became interested in theater. Well, it's a typical story. Somebody took me to the theater when I was 12. I lived in Brooklyn, New York, where I was born. And um, I, I, I was a movie fan. Even at, at 10 or 11 or 9, they took me to the movies, and I loved the movies. Didn't know there was a theater. But someone mm-hmm. gave my mother a pair of tickets to a play on uh, Broadway. It was 19, believe it or not, 1939. Oh. And uh, so she took me into Manhattan, and we saw this play. And I couldn't believe what I was watching. I didn't know that world existed. Everything mm-hmm. about it was different from the movies. And uh, I just knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life in a building like that. Isn't that funny? I, I got like a gong rang, and I felt this is where I belong. And for the next million years, I've been there. <laughs> it's funny. But it was seeing a play, a play called What a Life. Oddly mm. enough, that was the title. It was a comedy that George Abbott directed. It was about a high school kid named Henry Aldrich. And I identified with everybody in it. And I thought, gee, this is about real life. And it's uh, where I want to be. Yeah. So that's how it all started. Of course, it took me a few years to get to be a professional. But I was a theater nut from that moment on. 
So what were some of the other early shows that you had a chance to see that influenced you in some way? Yeah, I remember many of them. One was Gertrude Lawrence in a musical called uh, Lady in the Dark, which again stunned me because I didn't know there was such a thing as that kind of a play, you know, with music. Yeah. And she was extraordinary in it. Uh, There were so many. I went a lot because the tickets were so cheap. They really were literally sometimes as little as 55 cents for the last row in the last balcony, you know. And... um, the, 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 otherwise, they were always a dollar ten, which still wasn't prohibitive. And I would save my pennies and literally go to those Saturday. Saturday excuse me. <coughs> I go to those Saturday matinees, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I could go to everything because it was reasonably cheap. Yeah. So that was one. Gertrude Lawrence. I remember even that far back. I'm trying to put them into proper context. Um, oh, there were so many. Helen Hayes was appearing in a play called Candle in the Wind. Uh, the Lunts, Albert Lunt and Lynn Fontaine were appearing in Oh, Mistress Mine. Uh, and, and I'd go to see them and everything they ever did. And, and there were a few favorites. Ethel Merman was showing up in things like Something for the Boys, Panama Hattie. These are all musicals that have faded, but they were good. They had scores by Cole Porter or Richard Rogers and Larry Hart. They mm. were the best writers. And because the shows weren't so expensive to produce, they didn't have to run four years to make a profit. So Merman would show up in a new show every season. Yeah. Mm. It was a rich time, really it was. And we moved to Manhattan when I was 12. Um... Let me see if I got the dates right. Yes, I was 12 years old, and uh, we, that's when I was more readily able to go to the theater because we only lived 40 blocks away from Broadway. Oh. <coughs> Excuse me. So where did, you, where did you sort of study theater? Did you study in school? Or? No, not in grade school. And mm-hmm. in high school, I didn't study theater, but they all had, high schools had a, a dramatic club. So from the very first term that I went to high school, I appeared in plays like Arms and the Man, believe it or not. Oh. I was so young and so short that because it was an old boys school, the first part I played was the part Lynn Fontana played on Broadway. <laughs> it was a play called Arms and the Man um, when I was little. And I, I grew out of girls' parts very quickly. And yeah. so I did plays like uh, Arms and the Man, Charlie's Aunt, Ox and Box, all of that in high school. Yeah. When I got out of high school, I started uh, college at New York University. And there, too, they had a very good drama department. But I still wasn't studying acting. I was just acting. Oh. And in college, I did things like The Little Foxes and, uh, uh, well, one play every year. Um, let's see, I started to study because in 1946, when I was only, I guess, 18, um, I got my first job as an actor. I, I, I went uh, to, uh, oh, I know what it was, a casting director, believe it or not, uh, from Hollywood had seen me in a play at NYU called The Little Foxes. And for some reason, 
he called the school and said we'd like to see him at Warner Brothers. Oh. And um. yeah, so I went to the talent scout. I saw his boss. Her name was Elma Bookoff, and uh, she said to me, "Well, I'm told that you're good, uh, but you're a little young to be. I can offer you a term contract at Warner's at seventy-five dollars a week, but you know you wouldn't have much to do because you're not that castable, so young." I think you should get a little more seasoning. And she said she would help me to do that. And believe it or not, she made a phone call to one of those summer theaters called the Newport Casino Theater in Rhode Island and said, we think he'd make a very good apprentice. And I met Sarah Stam, who ran the theater, and she took me on. I had no salary for the first three weeks, but for the rest of the summer, which was another five or six weeks, I was a member of Equity, and that's how I got my Equity card. I became a professional oh. actor, and and there I did eight or nine plays. Now, mind you, I was young, so I wasn't that castable. I would play the butler in the Philadelphia story, and then there were several mm -hmm. plays that had young parts in them, so I did those as well. And that's how it all began. When I got out of college, I was living in New York already with my family. So I continued to make the rounds like every young actor does. And it began very slowly, starting with uh, extra work in film and then little bit parts in film. And then finally in 1949, I landed my first Broadway show. I want to ask you... Oh, yes. I, I want to ask you about that, which I believe was Darkness at Noon. So Yeah, it was. That's right. How did you sort of audition for this how did well it, 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 we made rounds you know what that means you, you actors yeah. would simply go around town and ask the various casting directors what's casting today you know or you'd get mm -hmm. a newspaper that told you what was casting today there's a thing called i forgot what it was called but it was like q actors cues you'd read in there that so-and-so is reading people for this play that was how it was done and you didn't even need an agent. You could just go up to the producer's office and say, here I am, I'd like to read. And if there was anything in it you could do, they usually let you read. Yeah. So I did just make the rounds. And uh, one day I got lucky. I read for this play, uh, Doctors at Noon, at the uh, office of the Playwrights Company, who were producing it. And I read for the stage manager, that's all. He, they didn't have the director there. They didn't have the author there. But he liked me, and he had me come back and read for the um, director. And then I was asked to come in the third time and read in the theater. And uh, that's just the way it worked. I got that part. Yeah. So uh, that was my first. So <clears throat> what was it like to be able to work with Claude Rains and Jack Palance, who were big stars and stars of that show, of Darkness? You remember that, yes. Well, actually, uh, Reigns was an idol of mine. I mean, I was an idol of his. No, he was an idol of mine. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and I've known him from the, from the movies, of course. Now, we're talking 1949, 1950. I'd already seen Casablanca and a dozen other movies he was in. So I was thrilled. And the one scene I had in the play, which was a good scene, just one scene, but it was a, a, a key scene in which I had to betray him in some way, and so it was he and I and Jack Palance were in the scene. 
And uh, I was thrilled to death because for five minutes every night or ten minutes, it was the three of us on Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was good. Um, he was very good to me. He, he took a shine to me. And uh, we didn't become friends, but he did invite me out to his farm in uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. He was a gentleman farmer between films. And um, I, I really had great respect for him. So when the play closed in June, it ran a full season and won a lot of prizes. And um, it closed for the summer. And then in the fall, in September, it was going to go on an eight-month national tour across America. And uh, I decided to stay with it and go. Uh, two or three of us from the original cast did go. And this time it starred Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. who was a big movie star, too. And that was a glorious experience. I'd never been anywhere. You know, we didn't travel a lot in those days. Travel was much more complicated and expensive. So when I got this offer to see America, I grabbed it, and I went on the road for about eight or nine months with Robinson and, uh, uh, and a few of us from the original company. And that was, again, I was, I was all of, now I'm in my early 20s but still very young and yeah. totally inexperienced with life and travel and, you know, all the things that happen to you when you begin to leave home. So that was glorious. Now, when I came back from that tour nine, eight or nine months later, I was beginning to have a little bit of success. I had, I had done some off, off Broadway plays, you know, showcase things. And I'd been seen by an agent who agreed to represent me. And so now I felt a little bit more like a professional actor. And suddenly I'm being offered another play. This was a play that had played a season on Broadway. It was called The Strike. It had starred Jose Ferrer on Broadway. And now it was going on the road, just as Darkness at Noon was about to go on the road, had gone on the road. This time the star was going to be Van Heflin, oh. who was a movie actor. And, uh, they offered me this role. It was about the same size as the part I'd had in Darkness at Noon. But suddenly I thought to myself, it's funny how you you run into situations where you begin to learn who you are. Yeah. And I realized that I really didn't want to be a kind of what they lovingly call a gypsy. You know, traveling all the time and working all the time. I, I, I really wasn't good at that. And so what I was saying to myself was, you love to act, and you love the life of an actor, but the, 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 the rest of it is not good for you. You need stability. You need mm -hmm. structure. You don't get that as an actor. You know what I mean? It's always mm -hmm. when the show closes, you have to look for the next job. And even if you have a contract with a movie studio or something, it's very precarious. The job ends and you don't know what the next one's going to be. So there's not much stability in it emotionally, yeah. at least for me. And I learned that about myself. So I made up my mind after these three or four seasons of working rather consistently, making a modest but good living, I wanted to find something else to do in the theater that didn't involve acting. How do you like that? At the age of 23, I was, or 24, 
I was looking for other other aspects in theater that might uh, use me. Yeah. And sure enough, one day, and I had been working, by the way. Television was just beginning. It was live. It was never done on film in those days. And I would get my job at my uh, occasional guest shot, you know, at a show like uh, One Man's Family or, oh, there were so many that were on the air in, the, in those days. And I would do a part in them, but it was all very, again, sporadic. You yeah. do the show, you'd be paid for it, and then you'd have to start looking for another part. I yeah. didn't care for that lifestyle. So uh, when, when I got a call telling me that somebody I knew was leaving a job with a talent agency, and did I know anyone who I, they might suggest to replace him, I said, yes, me. <laughs> I did. I had yeah. never been an agent, but television was just best beginning, and so the agents who represented actors in television were mostly very young because, you know, it was a new field. Yeah. So these agencies were established, would take on young people like myself and sort of train them, and, and that way they had extra income in the agency. So when I heard that Liebling Wood was the name of the talent agency, and Audrey Wood was famous. I knew who she was. I'd never met her, but I knew who she was. She represented playwrights, and she had the best. She had yeah. Tennessee Williams and Robert Anderson and so many others, Carson McCullers, many, many fine playwrights. Her husband, Bill Liebling, which is why the agency was called Liebling Wood, only handled actors in the theater. And uh, it was an Eastern agency. They didn't really work much in film. But they had a long list of clients, and, and he was he was really a, more like a booking agent. In other words, a play would be announced, he would get to know the producer, and he would then submit actors for all the roles and collect the commission on the runs that they that they ran out. Yeah. Um, and then they I met them, and of course I was a very likely candidate because I had been in the theater for three or four years already. I knew people. I knew actors whom I could bring to the agency with me and, and as clients. And sure enough, they hired me. Very small salary, but a, a decent salary. And I began to book actors in television. In fact, I even hired, I was able to get jobs for some of the people I'd acted with. I remember booking Jack Palance, oh. who had been in the play with me on Broadway. I put him on a on an Alfred Hitchcock Presents or a Craft Theater or one of those television shows. And so I stayed there for a year, learned my craft about how, how to sell actors to, to buyers, to, to, to producers. And then uh, at the end of the year, after all those years of there being a great success, Liebling Wood decided to sell its agency to a big agency, to a big international uh, agency called MCA. Yeah. Because Mr. Liebling wanted to retire, and Miss Wood, he wanted to be sure that she'd have a secure future. So she took her entire client list and her staff, including me, oh. with her to MCA. And suddenly I find I'm not having a job. I'm having a career. <laughs> because that's an agency where you go for life, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and I ended up spending eight years there. Okay. So I, I want to ask you a few, one or two more questions about your acting career before I ask you more yes. about agenting. So you were, okay. 
you were doing Darkness at Noon with these two big movie stars, Claude Rains first and then Edward G. Robinson. So what did you think about them sort of compared to the other one? Oh, interesting question. Well, they're both obviously very, very good actors. But they work in slightly different styles. Rains is British-born, although he didn't really play only British characters, of course. But he had a more intellectual approach to the role of Rubishoff, the character. Uh, Robinson is equally gifted, but he's more of an American naturalistic actor, you know? Yeah. And so his, his, his Rubishoff was a little more emotional. But it was they were both very good, and they both had very good reviews. So uh, it didn't change what I was doing, because the boy I was playing was simply a young son of a friend of theirs who had betrayed... Uh, it, was, it had to do with communists taking over the world, you know, it was an anti-communist play. And I played the son of one of these men. And I had to, I was in prison. And Bat Palance was my jail master, you know, my guard. Yeah. And it was he who had me interrogated with, uh, and I had to lie, or they torture me, or they kill me or something. Mm -hmm. And so I had this one scene where I had to tell the untruth about my friend, my father's friend, Rubishoff. And, and uh, I betrayed him, really. It was very sad. Yeah. Um, uh, but but I, I, I found working with both of them just wonderful. You know, mm -hmm. how, what a great way to begin a career. Yeah, yeah, it was. In fact, Claude Range was amazing. You remember I told you I had to read for that play in the beginning three times. And the final day was to actually read it him as well because he was the star and Mr. Kingsley, Sidney Kingsley, who directed it and wrote it, wanted him to be happy with the cast he was choosing. So all of us who were finalists came to the Alvin Theater, it's now called the, I think it's called the Richard Rogers, and we went in the basement and we read a scene for Claude Rains. Well, Rains was so much an actor himself that he said to Sidney Kingsley, I can't ask actors to read for me. If you like them, I'll take them. <laughs> so I didn't have to read. Oh. And of course, the second season, I didn't have to read because I played the part. And they yeah. knew me, you know. So uh, uh, that, that was easier the second time. You know, you begin to get known. Uh, the reason I was offered the Shrike the following season was that they had seen me in this play. Yeah. And the, the, the director just called me up and said, I liked what you did. Would you like to play this part in this tour? So that was good. I was beginning to be an actor who didn't always have to audition. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and and that's all I can tell you about that. Uh, it, it was just it's a glorious experience. I remember it vividly as though it were yesterday. Yeah. I could tell you details about each city we played, you know, about New Year's Eve in Chicago and, and all that kind of stuff, and how I learned to, how to cook on the road. Oh. I can still make one, one dish that I learned from one of the other actors. So I want to ask you about, you were doing some radio in addition to television in these early days. Oh, yes. Days. A good deal of it, yes. Yeah. So one of these radio shows, I think you wrote yourself. So did you always want to be a writer, too? No, I, well, I, I, I don't think I wanted to be a writer the way some of those who turned out to be writers only for the rest of their lives. 
But I knew I could write. I'd been given some encouragement in college on you know writing essays and short stories and what have you. And so I, I did I did want to write. And I uh, in order to give yourself a, a, a role, I was a, a friend of a, of a young actress named Dolores Sutton. We were friends. We lived in the same neighborhood. And I asked her to join me and write with me a piece for ourselves. And we'd mm-hmm. use it as an audition piece because these, these networks in New York would give you a time when you could audition. You could do whatever material you wanted to. You could only do it once, but at least you could be heard, you know, yeah. to, be, to be considered for their programs. So we wrote this half-hour playlist called Sibling, S-I-B-L-I-N-G, Sibling. And uh, we did it for one of the directors at NBC who really found us charming <laughs> and, 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 and shocked us by saying, I like this enough to put it on my program. Oh. He had a program every Tuesday night called Radio City Playhouse. Yeah. Well, I think it was Tuesday night, whatever day it was. Uh, it was on every week, and they did original material. So they bought the script and did it on the air across the country with Dolores and me playing the two roles. Oh, Well, that was a big step forward. It really helped. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, you, you don't become a star overnight, but I did get to know more and more people, and little by little, you found the work was rolling along. Yeah. I remember once I just read an, a, a general audition for a soap opera called The Brighter Day, which had been on the air for a couple of years. And there was a character in it named Bruce Bigby. <laughs> and guess who was playing him at the time? A very young Jack Lemon. Oh. But Jack Lemon, this is all before movies, before yeah. he became a movie star, he was offered a leading role in a soap opera on another network. So he left The Brighter Day to do that, and his part was available. So I auditioned and got that part. So now I'm on The Brighter Day, which is a running job. You know, I was on it for about nine months. And then Mm -hmm. one day, when I came in, you you never got the scripts in advance, so you really didn't know where the plot was going. And one day I came in and picked up my script, and I noticed that the character I was playing, Bruce Bigby, at one scene, he goes, <coughs> and his wife says to him, are you all right, darling? And I said, yeah, just a little cough. I knew they were planning to kill me. Oh. <laughs> kill me off to yeah. write me out of the show. Not because I was bad. It's just the storyline. The storyline yeah. went in another direction, and I wasn't necessary anymore. So sure yeah. enough, about four weeks later, I died. <laughs> 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 that, was, that was the end of that role. But Mm. it was all part of the beginning of a career. However, all of that put together still made me feel I wanted to try something other than act. And that's what leads me to what I told you before about getting the job at Liebling Wood. Yeah. So I I want to ask you one more thing, which is, was this experience working on Sibling the inspiration for your novel Take a Giant Step? No, no, that came much, much later. Uh, oh, uh, the, the uh, oh, I see what you mean. Some of that material is in the book, is in the novel, yes. 
Oh, it, it's a fictional book, of course. Yeah. But I did use Dolores and me as sort of central characters based on me. We weren't exactly the same, but they were based on me. And the adventures of a young couple meeting cute in a restaurant in New York, becoming friends, and then their first year. And that's what Take a Giant Step was about, because it led up to, that's right, the time when they get on the air as a couple, at the beginning of their career together. And then I did a little, I think, a postscript to the book, which said that, talked about the rest of their life. Yeah. And whatever, I made all that up. <laughs> so back to asking you about your agent and career, who were some of, or how, how did you become a theater agent after starting as a TV agent? Yes, good for you. You remember all that. Uh, well, it started, yes, you're, it's a good question, and there's a very simple answer to it. When Audrey Wood sold her agency to MCA, she did insist that they take all of her staff with her. There was me and one or two other people, including the secretaries as well. She wouldn't move unless they would give us all jobs. So they took us all on. But the only place they could place me in this big agency, in their TV department, because that's what I've been doing, except that I wouldn't be doing the same kind of work. And the work they wanted me to do was really not connected to actors at all. They um, wanted me to go out and talk to advertising agencies about sponsoring programs that they would represent the authors of. I hated it. I was running around New York talking to people in advertising agencies it was like a business job. It had nothing to do with show business, yeah. you know? And so I went to one of the bosses and I said, look, I, I'm grateful to be here and I thank Miss Wood for getting me the job, but it isn't what I want to do. I want to work in the theater. And they mm -hmm. had a very good theater department, but it wasn't huge. And there was one man who handled only people in musicals. His name was David Hopper. And he, he, was, he was the entire little department. They had another mm -hmm. person to do actors in straight plays. Another one were like Audrey Wood and Kay Brown, who only handled playwrights of plays. So he, he needed an assistant and because uh, he was getting too, too, too busy with, with his major clients. Yeah. And uh, so he offered me this job as his assistant. And then I was happy because they moved me out of television and I became David's assistant in the musical theater department. And there my job was simply to assist him, meaning to help service the big shot clients he had. So, for instance, if Ethel Merman was going to do a Broadway musical, and she did, yeah. called uh, Happy Hunting, this was, a shop show she did, I would sort of be the one he would who would visit her backstage, you know, who would sort of, we call it servicing the client. It's not really making a deal for them. But it's making sure they're content during the length of a run. Yeah. An assistant. I was an assistant. But on the other hand, the other half of my job was to go out into the world of off-off-Broadway and, and anywhere where showcases were done and to seek new talent to develop yeah. and grow with. And that's what I did. And he was very generous to me. He gave me all the time in the world. And I would visit these, these little off-off-Broadway reviews or, or musicals, and anyone I really believed in who wasn't famous yet, I would ask if they would be my client. Yeah. Uh, and that led to my finding these people and, and, and developing them.
Are there so, any people that you discovered that you were especially proud of finding? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. My The one gem in my crown was Cheetah Rivera, oh. who was only about 18 at the time or 19 years old. And she was appearing in an off-off-Broadway review called the Shoestring Review. You know, mm. And she was so great in it. And nobody known her yet. She was, had been in the chorus. And I fell in love. I just thought she was brilliant. Yeah. So she became my practically my first client of my own, as opposed to David Hawker's client. Oh. And we were together for the rest of my agency career, which, by the way, lasted 20 years. I'll go into that later, but for the next 20 years, I was an agent. Yeah. And I developed a cheetah. And then, of course, because we were only in musicals, remember, I didn't work on straight plays. David's department permitted him to handle anyone in musical theater, not just act, but directors, choreographers, designers, conductors, anyone who worked in musical theater. And so I was looking always for new writers because, you know, Rogers and Hart and Cole Porter were last year's generation. And now we were looking for new people. And mm -hmm. one day, that's exact. I used to have an open, open session every Tuesday. They had a little room at MCA with a piano in it, which you could book for the hour. And every Tuesday, I would hear anyone who wanted to play for me. That is, composers, lyricists, or performers who wanted to come in and audition, you know, to be potential clients. Yeah. And one day, and one day uh, 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 I, I came, long story short, but uh, there was a team that consisted of John Kander, the composer, oh. and his two good friends from boyhood who had all moved to New York from the Midwest. And they were James and William Goldman, brothers of each other, who oh. were would-be playwrights. They were about to become writers. They both became very successful writers, but they had decided when they were teenagers that they would write a musical one day, the three of them, and... They wouldn't even say who wrote what. They'd just say a new musical by these three people. And they came in and played it for me. And I just flipped. Yeah. And I took them on, all three of them, as clients. And that's, and then John Kander became... They went off to do other things after their first show was done. But during that year, I represented all three of them. And uh, then John remained with me for the rest of my career. Oh. So, so he won. and then there, there, there were others. There, there were there a good list of them. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I discovered them, as I did with Cheetah and John Kander. But sometimes Somebody I would call from London or from Canada and say, this is a young Would man. you see him in New York because they want to move to New York and have a larger canvas? One yeah. of those people was Robert Goulet, oh. who had done some success in Canada, where he was from. But he came to New York and he sang for me. Well, that was not hard to tell. <laughs> he could sing, you know, and he was charming. And so I represented him on his very first show, which was Camelot. I want to ask you about the original production of My Fair Lady, which you were involved in. Yes, I was. Yes. I was involved in it in the following way. My boss, David Hawker, represented Rex Harrison who was starring in it, who represented, um, no, Rex Harrison, that was, that was the only actor. Now, Julie Andrews 
had come to America a year before, before mm -hmm. Bear Lady, in a musical called The Boyfriend. But because she was English, the English office had sent her to us at, a, as, at 19 years of age. And we, she just, and we were told, this is the girl who's going to be playing the lead in The Boyfriend. Will you look after her? You know, will you make mm -hmm. her deal and will you service her, her, her needs? And uh, so David Hawker did take her on because she was a client of MCA in London. And I kind of took over because he was busy with big, big people. Yeah. I mean, he was representing Rosalind Russell and Ethel Merman and Dorothy Fields. I could go on and on with his major clients, Jerome Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, all oh, kinds of people. Yeah. Um, so I took over with Julie Andrews and would visit her backstage during the year she was in The Boyfriend, and I got to know her. So when it came time to do My Fair Lady and she was offered that leading role, David made her contract. He didn't negotiate her deal. But from that moment on, she really became mine. Yeah. I didn't find her, you know, I understand. I was assigned to her. So Julie remained a client of mine for the next 20 years as well. Oh. That was a, that was a very, um, very happy experience because My Fair Lady was really trouble-free. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just worked. It worked from the beginning. The first night in, Phil in Philadelphia, and that's another story because it was in New Haven. I mean, it was snowing. There was a blizzard. That's, oh. the, that's the whole chapter. And it's all in my book, by the way, that whole episode. Yeah. Because it, it, it was scary. <laughs> but it needn't have been scary. It's just that it was such an overwhelming uh, job to do that Harrison, uh, he just panicked a little on the first, very first night of the first preview because he had never been in a musical before and suddenly being thrown in front of an orchestra you know, he, he was thrown back a little and, and frightened that he wasn't ready. And he wanted to cancel the first preview because yeah. of the, uh, he didn't think we were, they were ready to, to have an audience. But he was talked into it. That's a long story, but it's all in the book. Yeah. And he did go on, and of course he was brilliant. So that, that was the beginning of that great hit that ran for years and years and years. So I want to ask you about another big client that you represented, which was Jerry Herman? No, that, that, that we didn't represent. That's how <laughs> you bring that up. When, by this time, I was, at a certain point, I would say in the early 1960s, I think I've got myself right here, I was fairly well established then as an agent representing musical theaters. Not only John Kander and Fred Ebb, but two or three other teams somewhat less successful, but, but, but working on Broadway. And I had choreographers, and I had Cheetah, and many other performers as well. But Jerry Herman had grown up in New Jersey as a very close friend of two people, Leo Bookman and Phyllis Newman. Phyllis Newman oh. was a performer. Leo Bookman was my fellow agent. He was a good friend of Jerry Herman's. So when Jerry Herman realized that we were now on our own. We, well, I'm getting, my life's been too long and too complicated, Charles, because <laughs> I'm skipping things here. But, but by the time that this incident came up, we I'd already left MCA, that's another story, 
and I had we had our own little agency. We yeah. we formed a three person agency: Essentine, Bookman, and Seth. Bookman was Leo, and I was Seth, and the Essentine was Stark Essentine, who only handled actors. Oh. And um, so now we were established enough to be worthy of Jerry Herman, who already was beginning to be known because he'd written a show called, what was it called, the first show? Um, oh, I'll think of it in a minute. But it was a, a modest success. It ran about a year. And he, we did not represent him on that show. Well, David Merrick was a major producer, and he was about to produce something called based on the play The Matchmaker by Thornton Wilder. It was to be called Hello, Dolly. Oh. And it didn't have a, a score. They hadn't chosen a composer yet. And Michael Stewart, who was a successful television writer, who wrote for Sid Caesar and The Caesar Show, was going to be the book writer. Oh. And I happened to be playing poker, friendly poker, with a group of people, among whom was Mike Stewart. Oh. So one day when I said to him, what are you doing next, Mike? He said, I'm about to do this musical called Hello, Dolly. Well, we don't have a composer yet. I said, oh, well, would you, what about Jerry Herman? Because Jerry had said to us, if you can find me a property, I can leave William Morris, which is the agency he was with for the first show. Oh. Because his contract was expiring in a couple of months. And if we could find him a job, another show, we could represent it. So I said to Mike, why don't you mention Jerry Herman? He said, well, I don't think Merrick would take him because he's new. He's only had one show on, and Merrick likes to work with established star writers. And yeah. it turned out that um, he hadn't yet found one. So Merrick agreed to meet Jerry Herman. And he did, and he said, well, you'd have to audition for me. And you know the play, The Matchmaker, or here's the script or whatever. He read it and said, find me some material that you think could be musicalized. Really. Jerry Herman went home and wrote four songs oh. for, for, for that musical. Came in to see Merrick on Monday, went to his office, played him the four songs, and Merrick offered him the job. So he called me up and said, I got the job. I'm going to write this, but we didn't know at that time it was going to turn out to be Hello, Dolly. Yeah. You know, that came later, but it was Hello, Dolly, and the four songs were bought, and he was hired to do the rest of the score. So we start to prepare his, uh, a, a, an agreement between us that we will represent him when his lawyer calls us, Bob Montgomery, his name was, and he says, Richard, I have sad news for you. Jerry meant well. He thought his contract with William Morris, the agency, was going to expire in oh. December, but it doesn't until next December. So he's committed contractually to be with them for this next show. Well, that was so sad. Because we hadn't done much. All I'd made is one phone call. But still, we were so thrilled we created that interest in him. Yeah. And uh, he was so honorable, Charles, that he insisted on paying us the commission anyway and he would pay oh. them as well and mm -hmm. we said we can let him pay 20 percent commission 10 to us and 10 to them that's 
that's too much for one phone call that I made. But we agreed, because we were just beginning our own careers, we would take half. And he was thrilled, and we were thrilled. So for the next nine, 20 years or whatever, we've been receiving commission on Hello, Dolly. Wow. And I never had to do any more work on it except <laughs> that first phone call. But it really helped establish our agency because the income from Dolly was enormous. Yeah. So and I, everybody was happy. I want to ask you, why did you decide to leave MCA and start your own agency? Very good question. We didn't decide that at all. We were oh. fired because at a certain point in 1962, it was, the government under Bob Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Attorney General, decided that MCA was a monopoly, that it both had a talent agency which was international in scope in Hollywood, in London, in New York, but it also had begun to be a film producer. It had bought Universal Pictures, movies company, and was now making films. And the government said, you can't be both the buyer and the seller of talent. So you have to give up one or the other. You know what I mean? You can't be both. Yeah. So they decided to give up the talent agency. Just let it go. Oh. And they closed it down in two weeks' notice. And we were all, all of us agents, and all of our clients were free. We had no jobs and they had no agents. So we had mm -hmm. to work very, very quickly to decide what to do. Some of the bigger agencies bought up some of the major agents in MCA. Took them, Audrey Wood, Kate Brown, others went to Ted Ashley, that's another agency. Mm -hmm. We were all on our own, the younger agents that were there. There were several of us, not just the three of us, but others as well. And we had to make a decision, and we decided, all right, we'll take all our clients with us, but we better hurry up, because if we don't make a deal soon with some uh, to open a new office, they'll be free to go anywhere. Yeah. You know, they have no contracts with us. Mm -hmm. So within weeks, we, we found a space very nearby, booked it. We, we used orange crates for tables and uh, uh, put in telephones, and all of us three went with a very small capitalization, oh. uh, you know, to invest in, we opened Hasseltine Bookman and Seth, and all of our young clients came with us, including John Candler and Fred Ebb and Cesar Rivera and then all the others I mentioned. So I didn't choose to leave MCA. It just went out from under me. And that's yeah. how I had to form Hasseltine, HBS. And there we were, the three of us, young and eager. We were all in our maybe maybe 30 years old. And um, we made a big success of, of HBS. We lasted for, again, I think uh, eight or nine years. Oh. Yeah, from 62 oh. to 69, seven years. But then we were so successful because one of my shows that I handled was, was Cabaret, which oh. was a big hit on my way. Yeah. And the other boys were doing very well, too. Uh, Stark had discovered Robert Redford. He had discovered Elizabeth Ashley. A number of people had grown with him to being lucrative, you know? Yeah. So this big agency called CMA, not MCA, but <laughs> CMA, Creative Management Associates, decided they wanted to buy us. Oh. So they did. They made us an offer we couldn't refuse. 
We didn't really want to go back into the big agency business because that's more like big business. It's less yeah. fun, you know what I mean? Yeah. You go to meetings, you have staff meetings, you have all kinds of rules and regulations. We didn't want to do it, but you had to use your head. And since neither of us had children, we weren't building an agency to leave to our children. We yeah. decided to take care of ourselves and accept their very generous offer to move over to them. And that's what happened. I yeah. went over there to so, CMA. So was there ever a client, a Broadway client that you worked with who was very difficult? You don't have to say <laughs> if you don't want to. Yeah. No, I don't mind. I don't mind because it's, it's water under the bridge. And most of them are dead anyway. <laughs> it's true. No, there were there were very, very, very few, very few. Uh, uh, I, I won't say dishonest anyway, so I'm not really vilifying them. But our temperaments didn't work well together. Just two or three. Yeah. Um, I, I can amusingly tell you that I adored her, and we remained good friends. But I couldn't represent Elaine Stritch. I did oh. for a year, and she drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she was a very talented woman, yeah. and probably a very nice woman, too. But she was a little bit uh, demanding in ways I couldn't deal with. So we only had a year together. <laughs> and then yeah. She left and did very well without me. Yeah. So was there a specific client that you worked very hard to get after they were a star? Yes, good questions. You know what you're talking about. Not often, because, you know, there was a certain amount of loyalty in that business. People who were happy with their agents remained with their agents. I was told that Bob Hope had the same agent from the beginning of his life. Oh. You know, and he wasn't a famous man. But uh, there was one. I had met Michael Bennett, the director, when he was a young performer. But I had never, our paths hadn't crossed closely enough. Then one year, he did do, choreograph a show that I represented the authors of. The show was not a hit, but he did extremely good work in it as a choreographer. It was called A Joyful Noise, oh, and it only played over the summer in summer theaters. It never got to Broadway, I think. If it did, it didn't run. Yeah. And I loved his work, so I asked him if he would join me and become my client. But he was already, from the beginning of his career, with a, a small actor's agent, a small agent named Jack Lenny, who only had a one-man office, just Jack mm -hmm. Lenny and a secretary. But Michael remained loyal to him until he died, which I admired. I was disappointed because I thought I, could, I was, you know, we were, we were in a better position to work for him than Jack Lenny was. But he yeah. didn't leave him because he was always with him. And Jack Lenny stayed with him right through a chorus line and everything else. Yeah. So he was one of the few stars that I tried to get that I that I didn't couldn't have. You know, it just they didn't want to come with me. Yeah. Uh, there are probably others, but I can't think who uh, off the top of my head. We we didn't go out seeking people often. There would be circumstances that um, made it. It's timely to go after someone. We know they were leaving their agents or whatever. But mostly we had our own people that we built or that came to us yeah. to ask us to represent them. So did you have to do a lot of sort of arguing over contracts and money and 
things like oh, that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you did. Absolutely, especially as they got a little more famous. Yeah. And you needed more refinements in their contracts. Um, I remember, for example, when we sold the movie rights to... Let me get it straight here. It was, it was Cabaret. Uh, that was the first really big movie sale I was ever part of. And I only represented half the authors. I had Tander and Epp, who wrote the score, music and lyrics. Yeah. But the William Morris Agency, this huge, you know, international agency, represented the other half of the team, meaning John, uh, uh, let's see, let's get that straight. Uh, the, there was a, a woman named Maureen Watkins who wrote the original play, and there were other writers. Yeah. Not the composer and lyricist. I had them. And the agent, the lawyer for William Morris said to me, look, you've never made a big movie deal before. I've done them all the time. He said, let me make the deal for all of them, including your people, and I'll give you half of your commission. I didn't like that at all. <laughs> I mean, I worked for years with John and Fred, and this was finally a big smash hit. I wasn't going to give up half the commission just because yeah. he was going to make a phone call. So I said, no, no, no. <laughs> So he made the deal, but then he had to send me the contract that he was proposing for the sale of the property to, uh, I forget who it was, I think it was, well, it doesn't matter, a movie company. I read it, and I said, well, there's one thing in it I don't see in the contract. It doesn't say that Candor and Ebb's music must be the only music used in the movie. Because, oh. you know, sometimes they make a movie... And they throw in night and day, or they throw in, yeah. I don't know, happy birthday, songs that didn't get written by the composer of the movie. I said, I want to make certain that if they do this movie cabaret, they have to have written all the music in it. So they put the clause in, and believe it or not, if you ever go to see the film of cabaret, let me make sure it's just cabaret, not Chicago. I got the two of them mixed up. They wrote them both. Um, Let's see. Yeah, I think any time anyone turns on a radio in the story of the plot, the plot, if music comes out of the radio, it has to be a song by Candor and Ebb. Oh. And it was. What happened was they used all the songs in the, that were in the Broadway show that weren't in the movie and used them on the, on, on the radio mm. if, if someone turned the radio on. So I was very proud about that, that it was really all music by Candor and Ed. Yeah. So I, I earned my half of the commission. <laughs> so, so when did you decide to leave agenting entirely and go back to acting? Yeah, good for you. You knew that. Well, as I told you, when they bought, when, when CNA bought HBS, Heseltine, Bookman and Seth, our little agency, and that would be in 1969, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, part of the deal was that they were not just buying us, but they wanted to be sure we didn't leave them. So we had to sign five-year employment contract with the new agency, with, with CMA. Five years each. And while I was still all in my 30s, late 30s, no, maybe even closer to 40, because I've been there, I'd, I'd, I'd have to rethink the years, but 
I wasn't old. And um, I, I did sign, as, as did Leo and Scott. We all signed five-year contracts. Well, I was there at CMA for four years. And I was really beginning to get unhappy because now most of my clients were either developed to the point where they were truly stars, like Cheetah, yeah. and Kenneth, and Ebb, and Ron Field, who has mm-hmm. passed away now, but was a major choreographer on, on several important shows, including Cabaret. And, um, and I was not dealing anymore with youngsters who were trying to get started, but with big stars, and everything was with lawyers and business managers. Yeah. It wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't really theater. It was more business. And I learned about myself. That isn't really who I was. I wanted to be in the thick and thin of the creating of shows, not necessarily in fighting over what size letter the name should be in or, you know, all those yeah. refinements and go into complicated contracts. So I said to myself, I'm only 44 or 5 years old. I'm not finished with this business. And I always loved being in it, not helping others be in it, but being in it, doing yeah. it myself. Oh, yes, one last thing. During those agency years, I did write on my own time and on vacations a couple of plays, right? Yeah. And yeah. two of them got on the stage, were produced. One was done only in stock. It didn't get to Broadway, but it was a a good stock production with Alan Alda, who starred in it, but it didn't quite make the strength to move to Broadway. The second one had, again, a stock tryout, but the producer, David Black, who owned it, decided to bring it to Broadway. He liked it, and he did. Now, I've had two shows done, and I'm still an agent. Yeah. I wrote a third play, a third play, and when it was optioned to be done, again in the regional theater, I did not want to go through this production the way I did the first two, which means on my spare time. Yeah. I wanted to fully enjoy this experience. So I went to the boss at CMA, San Cone, and I said, look, let me go a year early. Yeah. Because it was four years. I hadn't finished five years yet. And we made a deal. He gave me a cut in salary and the right to work from home. I would still be technically an agent, but I didn't have to bring in any new talent. I would merely service. And the one big thing left in my plate was the upcoming production of Chicago, also by Candor and Ed. And I would promise to service that show till it opened. But I could do it from home. And that's how I got out of the agency business after four years there. Yeah. And I went back to acting and writing. And uh, the play that, that I left to, 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 to oversee did not work. Uh, it had some bad luck along the way. The theater that tried it out was doing other new shows, only new shows, no no revivals. Oh. And it didn't find a big enough audience. So it closed before it actually got my play on. It didn't, didn't work. Mm. And I, we couldn't sell it elsewhere. So that one didn't happen. But I didn't care. I now had enough money to at least know I could live, even if I didn't make a lot of money as an actor or writer. 
And that's what happened. And for the next 30 years, that's mm. what I've been doing. Yeah. Yep. I started at 47 to act again. Mm. And uh, it was it was glorious. Of course, I thought I'd begin at a different level than I had to be. <laughs> I remember there was a wonderful man in our business called John Houseman, who had been a very prominent producer and teacher and sponsor of other talents. He was very close to Orson Welles and worked closely with him on many projects. Yeah. And he decided to become an actor at the age of 70, <laughs> believe it or not. And the first part he played was in something called The Paper Chase, and it made him a star. Yeah. And for the rest of his life, he appeared in character roles, but as a star. Yeah. And I thought, that's how yeah. I'd like to begin my new career. I'll do a character part in a leading role. <laughs> it didn't work that way. I had to begin at the beginning as though I was 17 years old, mm. which means I had to introduce myself to a whole new world of agents. You yeah. know, they, they, they'd all grown up since I'd left the, ages, uh, the acting field. And I, I did off-off-Broadway showcase plays, two of them. And in one of them, I was seen by an agent who said, yes, I'd like to handle you. So I began my new career with an agent, and it, it, it worked. The next 30 years, I made a darn good living, never became a star, was always a supporting player, and that's why I finally wrote a book about yeah. all that, called Supporting Player. So and that's it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I want to ask you some more things about all these things you did since you left the agency. So, um, Paris is Out was the play you were mentioning that came to Broadway that was written by you. So, yes, that's right. How did you get the idea for to write this? Well, you just had to go to my, <clears throat> my parents' home for dinner one day. <laughs> I heard my father and mother talking. I said, you know, they really are an interesting couple. They're, they're fun, they're volatile, they can be yelling and screaming at each other, but I knew what that meant. It meant they loved each other. Yeah. And so it seemed to me there was a comedy in them. And I remember one incident involving <coughs> my mother, who was much more outgoing and, and wanted to be part of the world. My father was very, his favorite expression was, I'm content. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't want it too much. In life. I loved him dearly, but he... He, he didn't have the, her sense of adventure. Yeah. And so finally, after many years of not going anywhere, she started to travel without him. Oh. She would take a week or two and go somewhere with a lady friend. And uh, so that's when I, that gave, gave me the idea that she would book them on one trip he agreed to make to go to see a place she'd always wanted to see, which was Paris, France. Yeah. And they're going to go to Paris. And he gets all kinds of crazy ideas about the rules and regulations about this trip. And that's when he finally says, I'm sorry, I'm not going. Paris is out. And yeah. that was what the play was about. And how they worked through that. And at the end, they're sailing off to Paris. <laughs> yeah. So It was fun. I want to ask you the question that I'm sure everyone who's interviewed you has wanted to know, which was, that play was produced by Donald Trump, who is our <laughs> yes. yeah. So yeah, president, yes, I know. Yes, I know. So, well, he wasn't. He, it was actually produced by a man named David Black, who was a legitimate producer. 
David had yeah. produced many shows, including George M. and a comedy called uh, The Impossible Years. He'd had success as a producer. So he was a producer. But he always brought in big money people to help finance these plays. Yeah. And in this case, he I don't know how he met Donald Trump. Donald Trump was only 24 years old at the time, working for his father in real estate. And uh, I, I knew nothing about this. But he put in enough money in the play to be given not just the right to invest, but to be billed. So it says, David yeah. Black, I think in association with Donald J. Trump presents. Yeah. So. But it, it, I wish I could tell you terrific stories about me and Don. <laughs> but to be honest with you, I never really met him. I remember I would. I was so proud of my play, and it only ran for 13 weeks, but it did run that long. And um, I, I would visit it as often as I could. And they knew me at the theater, so I could walk in any time I wanted to. So I would drop in and stand at the rear of the orchestra and watch a bit of it, you know? Yeah. And twice I did that, and he was standing there. <laughs> he, he, he had a convertible car, I think a white one. And he would drive up to the theater and park it and come inside and just stand there. You know, it was like his play. Yeah. And he'd watch it and he'd leave. But I never met him. He was just a backer to me, you know. Yeah. There's not much of a story. But it's true. His name is on the poster forever yeah. as the co-producer. So what did you think about the way that the show was received by critics? And well... <laughs> Oh, I have to laugh, because otherwise I really would cry. I made one mistake. Uh, David asked me in the middle of rehearsals, he said, I want to try something revolutionary with this play. He had seen it, you see, produced in, in Paramus, New Jersey, in this tryout. Yeah. And it, it didn't have Sam Levine in it, who was a legitimate star. It had a very good character actor, but he wasn't a name. But Molly Pecan was in it. And she was a name that would attract a certain audience. Yeah. So he decided that in the middle of the run in Paramus, New Jersey, he said to me one night in the parking lot outside, listen, Richard, I'm going to bring the play to Broadway. I don't care what. I was thrilled. So he did announce he was coming to Broadway. But he said to me, I want to do something odd with this play. And here's where I made a big mistake. He mm -hmm. said, I don't want it to open at all. I just want it to start running. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, I don't know what the critics will think of it. It's kind of a nice family comedy, makes no pretensions at being more than that. But critics can be difficult when it comes to things they don't consider literature enough. And mm -hmm. I don't know that this would make it with the critics, at least the big shot critics. So I'd just like to say, the play is playing. Give us two weeks and then you can come whenever you want to the critics. He would say that. Yeah. Well, he did do that. And they didn't like it. They didn't like the being told when they could come to the theater and when they couldn't review it. Yeah. So we got we made some very bad mistakes, and as a result, some of them were hostile about that. They'd say things like, "Well, we can hear why Mr. Black didn't want critics to come and see this." Oh. You know. Then there was some that loved it. It had four or five very good reviews, yeah. but unfortunately, not the major papers. The New York Times. It's my bad luck that Clive Barnes had become the new critic on the New York Times when for 20-odd years it had been Brooks Atkinson 
Yeah. Because one day, Brooks Atkinson came to see the show in the preview. David Black called me the next day and said, Dick, you're going to love this. He said, it's a delightful family comedy. And went on with oh. a quote. And he said, the only thing is you can't put it in the paper as Brooks Atkinson, New York Times, because I don't work there anymore. Oh. So all he could do was uh, wait until the critics reviewed it, and then he could use this quote, but it would just say Brooks Atkinson. It wouldn't say the New York Times. So uh, we had some bad luck. I'm not saying it would have had rave reviews, but it would have had enough good reviews to give it a little more of a... Remember, it didn't close Saturday night. It ran for no. 13 weeks. Yeah. And every single week of the run, every week, I have it in the scrapbook to prove it, Variety would say, Broadway down, Paris up. Every week it rose in its gross because it found its audience among the the the, the, the more the, more, the lower priced people that didn't spend it, uh, so much money for tickets. Yeah. And David came out immediately after it opened and put out a whole bunch of what they call twofer tickets, meaning discount seats, and they gobbled them up. We would have a an advance sale of two hundred dollars for a matinee on Wednesday, and by the time the show started at two o'clock, it would be sold out, but at half price. See, yeah. So every week it got, it built more. It's built so well that he changed the schedule from two matinees a week to three to four. Oh, that's like four weeks because it, it attracted a, a large group of mostly women who would go to the theater during the week at a matinee. Yeah. Anyway, it was a happy experience for me because everything else about it was joyous. I loved the cast, yeah. and I loved watching it for those 13 weeks. And then it had a very nice run when it closed with another star, Pat O'Brien, from the movies, and it played 48 weeks on the road. Oh. In various theaters, yeah. Yeah. So it was a happy experience. But Donald and I had nothing to do with each other. But if I if that play had made money, he wouldn't be the president. How do you like that? Yeah. <laughs> because he wouldn't he wouldn't stuck to show business. He didn't care a bit about show business. He cared about business. Yeah. And and uh, uh, if it had made him money, I think he'd have produced other plays. You know? Yeah. But he didn't yeah. say he stayed away. That's that story. So, what else can I tell you? I'm, 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 I'm 93 years old now. I still feel part of the theater. Even you, though I don't actually act anymore, I still have connections. I have, oh, I have a sixth career. I became a critic yes, oh, almost 10 yes. years ago. I, you know? I, I want to ask you about that, but I also want to ask you about another one of the many things you've done, which is, you were the host of a radio program called This Is Broadway, which we can, oh, yeah. which can still be heard today. So how did you sort of come to be the host of this? With oh, that's, that, that's a simple. That, that was no big deal at all. Along, yeah. the, along the way, when you've been in the business all your life, you meet lots and lots of people. <laughs> One of the very lovely people was a man named Ron Conakey, who was my lawyer, our, our agency's lawyer. And his wife, Isabel Robbins, she was an actress, but she was also married to Ron, and she was therefore financially independent. And um, she produced a number of off-Broadway shows. Um, and she was a girl of our town. She knew everybody. You know, she's one of those women 
with energy and direction and purpose. And she was yeah. seen everywhere, and she joined him at many of the events he went to. So Isabel was was uh, the hustler, uh, in, in my case, who had developed this idea called This is Broadway and sold it to, I think it was called uh, yeah, PBS, the yeah. uh, National Public Radio, whatever that is. Um, and she, she and uh, a woman, uh, I think Lee Reynolds was her name, created it and they wanted to put it on the air but they didn't want her to be the only spokesperson they wanted a man and a woman there was a very successful team in new york called dorothy and dick dorothy kilgallen and her husband richard como that were on the radio and mm. this was to be like that isabel and richard me and she and she and i so she asked me if i do it and i did it and we did it for two years yeah, yeah. Uh, it was only a three and a half minute show that's all it was <laughs> Three and a half minutes of direct conversation with major people in the uh, in the theater. Yeah, uh, we talked mm -hmm. with, with with Liv Ullman and Meryl Streep a year after she got out of college, oh, and so yeah. many others uh, on the other. Uh, on, on, it was only on radio; it wasn't visual. Yeah, mm. but it is still it is still syndicated somewhere. I think you can get it on YouTube. This is Broadway. Yeah, they have yeah. all of the episodes. So, <laughs> Funnily yeah. enough, Charles, uh, one day she said to me, look, we've done everybody in the world except you, except oh. me. <laughs> so she interviewed me. Oh. <laughs> I'm on one of the episodes as the guest. Yeah. So I just want to ask you about a few more things before we end. So one of them is the Norman Conquests, which you assistant directed on Broadway so yes yes assistant directing was something you hadn't done before so was never this... had done before never had done before that happened quite well it was a, it was a legitimate job I'll tell you why um, through again one of the contacts I knew Philip Langner who produced the, the theater guild and I had auditioned for him for a play he was about to produce called Absurd Person Singular by um, Alan Aikborn. And uh, the director was going to be an English man named Eric Thompson. He had directed it in London. And now he's going to do it on Broadway. So I was going to London. I was going on a vacation, and Philip knew that. So he said, why don't you meet Eric Thompson in London and see what he thinks of you being in it? Yeah. So I wrote, I, I did make the appointment. I was nervous because I thought of Eric Thompson, British. You know, he'll be a stuffy old shirt. <laughs> and I won't have anything to say to him. Well, he couldn't have been dearer. He was oh. a young, sprightly ex-actor who'd fallen in directing by accident by doing something off Broadway somewhere that somebody saw. And he became very close to Alan Akeborn. And he directed Alan Akeborn's play in London. And it was a big hit. So yeah. suddenly he's a major director, you know. So I walk into his office and he's so nice. He's so charming. He's like a fellow actor. Yeah. And he said to me, you wanted to see me about playing Reg in this play. Reg was the character. I said, yes. He said, well, he tells me, Philip Langner tells me that they're going to have to do it with six stars. Oh. Six names above the title yeah. to give it some value in New York. Are you a star? He said to me. <laughs> No, no, I'm hardly an actor. No, 
But anyway, he let me read him read it for him. He said, it would be fine. He was very, very easy to be with. And then we talked and talked. And he said, now they keep sending me telegrams and asking me would I accept Estelle Parsons, would I accept Ken Howard, would I accept oh, yeah. Richard Benjamin. Who are these people? He didn't know them. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, they are all stars. They're all lovely actors. I can't deny it. So he accepted them all on my say-so. And he said, look, I, I, I'm new to Broadway. I've never been there. I think I need you as my assistant. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. So he offered me an understudy in New York for the for, to play Reg. But when I got to New York, the producer said, well, we can't afford to have an understudy for just one role. You'd have to cover two roles. Oh. And I didn't want to do that. So I didn't do that. And the next year... Uh, he, he did uh, Norman Conquest, and this time he put my name into his contract as my assistant, mm -hmm. as his assistant, which means he didn't want to have to fly back to New York every time anybody left to yeah. put in the replacement. He said, you'll do it. I said, I can't put an actor in a play. <laughs> no, the stage manager will really do it, but you'll supervise on my behalf because you know what I want. He was very casual about it all. Yeah. So I got an extra $150 a week. And all I had to, and of course, I did understudy in that. I did understudy uh, Barry Nelson, who played one of the roles. And uh, it, it was a joy to know Eric. He was a lovely, lovely man. He was the father of Emma Thompson and Sophie Thompson, his daughter, oh. the two daughters. Both what? became stars themselves. Um, but, but that's why I, I, I'm not an assistant director. That was just something I did because he, he wanted to give me a break. Yeah. Actually, you know, I did have a certain right to discuss casting with the management in New York on his behalf. So I suppose that helped him. Yeah. And there was one other thing I was able to do for him. When the Norman Conquest was trying out in, La in Los Angeles, and it was a very complicated tryout because there were three plays in the one title. Norman Conquest yeah. involved three full-length plays. So we had to open them one at a time. And then eventually they played in repertory. Yeah. And he didn't want to have to stay in L.A. for the whole four months and took to open those three plays. So he asked me if he could leave. He didn't know what his contract called for. He was the director and he had to be with it till opening night in New York. Yeah. But I said, you don't have to stay through the whole tryout tour. So I kind of helped him to ease his way home to London once the third play had opened out there. And he was yeah. grateful for that because he didn't want to stay indefinitely. And he didn't, wasn't derelict in his duties. He had done his work. Yeah. yeah. So um, he left and then he came back for the final closing there in L.A. So, uh, but that was a very happy time for me. Yeah. So I want to ask you about one more thing. You did a writing thing, which was writing the book for a musical called Spotlight, which played in <laughs> in Washington, Washington in 1978. So yes. how did you sort of get involved with writing this show? Very, very simple. David Black, remember, had produced Paris is Out, yeah. right? And it was... Yeah. Um, it was uh, uh, so I knew him. He was he was he was aware of my, my writing, and when he was doing Spotlight years later in '78, 
Um, it, it had a score by two fellows who were very well known in television, but they'd never written for Broadway. And the book writer, I don't know who it was. I've forgotten his name. I never met him. Uh, they didn't like the script. They liked the score, but they didn't like the script. Oh. And he wanted to replace him. So he knew me. He knew me from Paris is Out, and he asked me if I would do it. And since I'd never written a musical, I thought this would be a good way to learn how. <laughs> and I did. I did take it over and reshaped it, added a scene or two and a character or two. And we did do it in Washington, but unfortunately it really wasn't good enough. Yeah. And it didn't come in. Mm-hmm. But it did give me a credit as a. I remember uh, the the, uh, the the marquee was already up at the Palace Theater in New York, oh. and there it was with my name as the book writer. <laughs> it had to come down when we didn't know. Yeah. But it inspired me so, to try one of my own. It inspired me to uh, start one of my own books, and that one I will never give up on if I have to produce it from the grave. <laughs> it's called Shine. Yeah. And Shine won all kinds of prizes and has been optioned for Broadway by 20th Century Fox. Then 20th Century Fox got sold to oh. a man who didn't want to do any theater, and it's been jinxed. But I never will give up on it. It's a wonderful show. Yeah. I love it. So I want to ask you how you decided to become a theater critic, or why? Why or how? That was a complete fluke. Complete fluke. Somebody who knew me, because remember, when you've been in the business of 50 years or so, or more, 60 years, yeah. you know everybody. And there was an opening on this uh, uh, newspaper in Washington. And I was standing in front of a theater looking at the uh, billboard one day outside the Billboard Theater. And uh, someone else was looking at the billboard, too. His name was... I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, and we chatted. He chatted me up. He knew who I was because he was much younger than I, 20 or 30 years younger, maybe more. And he knew of my name. I don't know from what connection. I've forgotten now. But we got talking, and he really was so into me that he told me that he worked for this newspaper in, in Washington as a, as a critic and columnist. And um, he recommended me to his editor, who said they needed someone to cover Broadway. And so I got offered it by sheer chance, and I wrote for them for a long time, uh, until he moved on to another newspaper. He took me with him. Oh. I wrote for them, and then finally, uh, I was, uh, uh, oh yes, he passed away. He he had an illness that, that, that did him in. And I remained on with them. And, and that's where I am now. I, I belong to the outer critic circle because of him. Yeah. So how, and, as a critic, how has your own experience as an actor and a playwright shaped the way that you write reviews? Interesting question, because it is true that very few critics have been actors or playwrights. Yeah. They usually come from the world of academia. Uh, or, or, uh, or or just playing theater interest, but they haven't actually done it. I have done it, so I don't ever, ever say this is garbage and should never have seen a stage. Nobody yeah. sits down to write garbage 
what I try to do is evaluate what were they trying to do, and then I think they did it. You yeah. know, or where they failed or where they succeeded. Because there isn't a show that doesn't have a moment that might be quite brilliant. Yeah. I can think of several I can tell you about uh, where the show is no good, but the certain moment or a certain idea or the staging or the set or something. And that's what I try to be constructive. Yeah. In other words, critical, but constructively critical. Yeah. Not, not smart-ass, uh, this is garbage and shouldn't be allowed on a stage kind of thing. I don't, I don't believe in false praise because that's going to, the public won't appreciate that. They go to see something you raved about and they hate it. And that'll always happen anyway, but it shouldn't happen often because you should explain. And I try always put the positive parts about a review first. Walter yeah. Kerr taught me this. He didn't tell, teach me personally, but by reading Walter mm -hmm. Kerr, whom I consider a great critic, uh, he, uh, he always would put the, the, what is marvelous up front. And then at the back, he'd say, now, on the other hand, they made one mistake here. Or, in my opinion, this shouldn't have been there, whatever. In other words, it's constructive criticism. Yeah. And I think people do enjoy reading my stuff because it tells them what to expect. That is not a masterpiece, but it has this kind of enjoyment to offer if that's the kind of enjoyment you're seeking. Yeah. You know. So, so um, the I want to ask you one thing, which is, how did you establish the Cephi Awards, which are now given out oh, every year? Oh, that was just something I I wanted to do it because I once was given an award, and I did a tour of Angels Fall, a play by Lanford Wilson. I was an actor. He had written the role I played for another actor, for a star, for Barnett Hughes. Barnett Hughes was not available to do the tour, the summer tour, to try it out. But he would be available in the fall to uh, open it in New York. And I was told that's not such a fun way to do it. I said, no, 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 I'd be honored to create a role in Lanford Wilson Road and play it with the possible chance of playing it in New York if Barnett Hughes isn't free, because he had a TV series that may have been renewed or wasn't or would not be renewed. And I did it for, and I got an award, a thing called the Carbonell Award, which is given in Florida. It's a beautiful uh, sculpture made of brass and copper uh, that I have in the bookcase. I'm looking at it right now. That was for the best performance uh, in a supporting role, um, you know, in, in this play. And that was enough for me. I mean, I would have loved to do it in New York, but I wasn't going to because Bonnie did do it. And um, uh, I, I meant so much to me that I thought there are so many actors who are called character actors or supporting players, really. Yeah. I love that title, supporting <laughs> player, because I can think of a dozen of them that I would go to see on Broadway in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, People you won't know the names of. Evelyn Barden. Um, oh, I have to stop and think. Uh, mm. People I would go to see a play because they were in it. Yeah. Eileen Heckert was one for years until mm. she became a star. And she didn't want to be a star because she said the stars don't always get the best roles. <laughs> you know. And mm. also, if you're not the star, then you're not responsible entirely for the success or failure of a show. 
So I always preferred being under the title and being supporting. And I thought I'd like to give an award to those people who devote their lives to the theater, but who are not household names, you know? So I've been doing, I I decided to uh, make an endowment that Actors' Equity uh, uh, handles for me. And every June, along around the time of the Tony Awards, they do give out the Richard Sepp Award, which is a lovely-looking crystal uh, symbol and uh, a thousand bucks in cash to wow. someone who has really did something well, lovely this season that is not the lead, you know? Yeah. That's how it was created. And, and it, it'll go on in perpetuity. I've, I've mentioned that in my will. Hmm. So I want yeah. the last question I want to ask you is, as someone who's been in the theater for about 70 years and done almost everything there is to do, what advice would you give to someone who would who is just starting out in the theater? It's a very good uh, question, Charles, uh, because you have to make a decision, and it's hard for kids when they're 18, 19, 20 years old to make these kind of lifetime decisions. I realize <coughs> that it's more important, at least i from my point of view, to live a life of work. And work is very important. I yeah. think, I, I'm so glad I was not a, uh, what do you call it, a, a trust fund baby who didn't ever have to work, who had an income without work. Because work is what gets you up in the morning, gives you a purpose to your day. It doesn't matter what the work is. You can be yeah. a butterfly collector, but if that's what your passion is, I really recommend to anyone who has a real dream of a lifestyle, of a, of, a, of a commitment to whatever it is, to do it, or at least give it a chance. Give it a number of years in the beginning of your life to yeah. explore yourself. Mm-hmm. As my aunt Regina taught me when I was about six, know who you are and like who you are. That's a very important, I'd like to put that on my tombstone, I think I will. Because people don't always know who they are. They wake up 40 years later and say, what did I do with my life? I went to work every day. I did a job I didn't like or understand. But I, you know what I mean? It, it lacks, it lacks uh, uh, seasoning. Yeah. And I felt my life had a lot of seasoning. And I'm not a household name. I'm not a star. I'm not a multimillionaire. But I've made a good living at something I love dearly. And I'm so very grateful for that. I recommend it to anyone. Yeah. The only thing we should really wish to be is unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Thank you so much for doing this. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll remember to tune back in on Monday when I am joined by Lee Wilkoff. Lee Wilkoff has starred in the original Little Shop of Horrors as Seymour in Broadway revivals of Kiss Me, Kate, and She Loves Me, in plays such as The Odd Couple, The Front Page, and Breakfast at Tiffany's, and also in the original off-Broadway, Assassins. His other Broadway credits include Democracy, Waitress, Holiday Inn, Sweet Charity, and more. He is also the maker of the film No Pain Nudity, featuring Nathan Lane, Gabriel Byrne, Francis Conroy, and more. Thank you for tuning in.